hot atmosphere and that's a very well taken goal. And that is more heartache for Australia. The Corbett delivery for Matt Green, the far post goal. It's Dario Rodriguez. Australia has scored! Marco Bresciano! Here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup. Hello and welcome to the sixth edition of our series on the World Football Index that takes a look at some of the most interesting, intriguing and influential stories in our global game. On this edition, we will be looking at an iconic rivalry in the first half of the first decade of this millennium when Australia met Uruguay twice in a row in playoffs for the World Cup, eventually ending their epic quest for a first World Cup qualification since 1974. Well, I'm pleased to say that we have Mark Schwarzer with us on, on the show today. I, I think we've had a couple of ex-professional players before on the World Football Index, but we certainly haven't had one that's played over 500 times in the Premier League, as well as 100 times for his country. So it's an honour to introduce you, Mark. Um, these days, I believe that you work for Optus Sports, an Australian digital broadcaster who who cover the Premier League, among other competitions. And you also host your own podcast, which I listened to the other day, called Two Sharp Reds. Very entertaining indeed. How would you describe that podcast to our listeners? And, and of course, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, firstly, thank you uh, for, for having me on the show. Um, how would I describe the Two Sharp Reds podcast? Um, well, listen, it's, it's, a, it's a discussion around football, of course, uh, whilst trying a glass of red wine that myself uh, and Ollie Gill, who hosts the, the podcast, uh, open up and have a taste on a uh, taste of, with. And, and what we always found is that when you when you are talking about football, you're either sitting around having a beer or you're having a wine and the football, we found that the football discussions just flowed. Um, and we just thought that, you know what, this is a great way of trying to create a podcast around a bottle of red wine. And at the very end of it, we wrap it up by describing uh, the red wine and comparing it with a player or manager or, or, or someone involved in football, past or present. Um, generally, I try and use the people I was involved with, and Ollie just pulls people from left, right, and centre, and people that he's probably never ever met or never heard of before, and mostly Arsenal players because he's a he's a diehard Arsenal fan. Um, I'll, I'll have to try and sort you out a classic Chilean red wine at, at some point, Mark, all the way from Santiago. Absolutely no, I, I do like a I do like a Chilean red wine as well. I do like the the New World red wines um, very much. So cool, cool, um, and yeah. Also joining us, I'm delighted to say, is the Legendino, aka Tim Vickery, an oracle of South American football knowledge. How are you doing, Tim? Very well, and all the better for having an opportunity to uh, to go over this with one of the heroes of uh, of, of the occasion, because uh, you know. Mark Schwarzer stepped up big when it was really necessary. I've got really happy memories of, of these games. They, they were, I was in the stadium for both in Montevideo and uh, the, the last one, I was, uh, I was in a square early morning Montevideo. I was in a square uh, helping the broadcast of, of Australian TV, of, of, of SBS. And I've, I remember them as games that were wonderfully intense. And in fact, you know, given... Given the the tension, given what was at stake, and given the amount of travelling that had to be done, I think as spectacles they were far better than than, than we had a right to, to to expect. There was one narrative there that's gone. It was a narrative that that seemed very very strong at the time, but has subsequently changed, and that was it felt a little bit 
like the old power fading and the new power emerging. Now, Uruguay, the first kings of the global game, the first winners of the World Cup, didn't lose a World Cup game until the great semi-final against the Hungarians in 1954. But after 1970, they just tail off badly. In fact, between, between 1970 and South Africa 2010, in, they, they missed out on lots of World Cups, and of the 17 World Cup games they played, the only one won. So there was a real air of melancholy, and Uruguayans can be melancholy at, at the best of times, but uh, there was a real air of a birthright that had been taken away from them, and they would never again be champions. You've got to remember, this is before Tabarez took over, the current coach. He took over in the wake of the failure to qualify for 2006, and he's led them back to the top table. But they didn't know that was possible then. There was a book going around in Uruguay at the time, we'll never, we'll never again be champions. So it was almost as if their World Cup was just qualifying. Qualifying was, was almost good enough, you know, and the real misery was, was, was missing out. So they were the fading power, and Australia seemed to be the coming power who'd really got themselves organised. They had a, a competitive side. They were in the, the process of, of launching a league. So it felt like the old world fading and the new world of football emerging. Now, more than a decade later, Uruguay have come roaring back and Australia haven't really kicked on. So that narrative hasn't, uh, hasn't really come out. But that narrative seemed very, very strong at the time. Yes, Mark. I, I was reading a piece by by Simon Cooper, who wrote on Hiddink when the Dutchman first took over, and he was saying in that with a half decent team, a first rate coach, and some time to prepare, you can really create some history. And in two thousand and five, Australia certainly did that by overcoming Uruguay in this dramatic two legged affair that went all the way to penalties. Where, as we've already mentioned, you were the hero. Um, and you went on to give a pretty decent account of yourselves in, in Germany in the World Cup. What was the feeling in the Australian camp like before Hiddink took over and after he took over? Because as an outsider, I've always seen it as a process where he really instilled the confidence in, in the Australian side. There, there seemed to be a lot of self-doubt before he took over. Um, there, I mean, was there a lot of self doubt? Um, there, there wasn't. I wouldn't have said self doubt. There was the the feeling of, will we ever qualify for a World Cup? Purely because we we'd been uh, so close so often previously, and uh, we kind of always sort of we we always failed at the final hurdle. Um, so that, that I don't think that there was self doubt in terms of did we believe in our ability? We all believed that we were good enough. We believe collectively as a team we were good enough. It was just finding the right chemistry. Um, and I think ultimately it, was, it, it does come down to, obviously it, it, we see it all over the world in any team, whether it's a, a club team or it's an international side, you need the right leadership. You need the right guidance. Um, and I think the biggest difference was in Gushinik, we had someone that had an incredible amount of, of, of uh, experience Firstly, qualifying for World Cups, but also secondly, playing at World Cups. I mean, I suppose the experience of being part of a team that's in Oceania has to go to the Solomon Islands. Let's not forget, his first game in charge, we were playing the Solomon Islands in a, in a, in a two-legged tie. And that was to, to win Oceania, to then qualify for the final uh, part, well, final stages of, of World Cup qualification and ended up being against Uruguay. So... You know, it was a um, an incredible journey. Um, the Solomon Islands is a wonderful place, untouched, wild, um, and hot. I mean, unbelievably hot. And uh, we beat them at home and, and beat them convincingly at home. And then we went over there and we, we actually won the game only 2-1. 
and that's just because of the conditions were so leveling. Um, but we, that was job done. I mean, that was when I think Gus came into his own post those those games against Solomon Island. I think it was a case of everybody were on their toes all the time. No one was guaranteed a position. Um, players were were fighting for for opportunities to play in the side. And it was against the nemesis. You know, we played against Uruguay in 2001 in the qualifiers for the 2002 World Cup. We beat them at home 1-0 and unfortunately got beaten and beaten well away 3-0. And we, we didn't, you know, the treatment we received from Uruguay at the time was, was I mean, I think for, for South America, for qualifiers around South America, it's quite normal from my understanding. But for, for our perspective, it was very, very surreal and, and very abnormal. And we felt that we were we were treated very badly, and you know Australian the Australian government had to get involved. So there was a, there was quite a bit of tension at all levels um, back in two thousand and one, and that kind of boiled over and carried on to this two thousand and five qualifier. So so the scene was very much set. Like like Tim was saying, there, there was this this enormous amount. This atmosphere is like no other. Playing in South America um, in a World Cup qualifier is. Unique. I mean, I've played in Europe, played in European competitions, whether it's Europa League, UEFA Cup, Champions League. Um, playing at World Cups is another experience, but playing a World Cup qualifier in South America is insane. Uh, I was involved in the squad in in, in, 19, in 1993 uh, when we played against Argentina at the final stage and unfo- unfortunately failed there. Um, and then uh, again, obviously, twice against Uruguay. And and. That was a, an incredible learning curve. And the second time round, we just got everything right. The federation had learnt from the previous four years. Um, the manager was ruthless enough. He was, he was determined enough. He had the, uh, the stature, the reputation that players just followed. And, and you know what? We, we, we ran through brick walls for him. We did whatever we wanted, you know, whatever had to be done, we did. And that was, that was because most of us were kind of, at that stage of our career where we thought that this is probably our last ever opportunity and it's our best ever opportunity. And fortunately enough, we took it. Here we come, the Socceroos bound for Germany. Sydney erupts as a nation celebrates. like superstars. As Sydney hails the new heroes of Australian sport. Okay, let's uh, let's take it back a little bit before we discuss the 2005 playoff series. Um, let's let's take it back to 2001. Mark you mentioned that in 1994 you had that qualifier against uh, you had the playoff qualifier against Argentina over two legs. You're unfortunate to miss out then and of course 4 years later you were incredibly unfortunate to miss out on the on the '98 World Cup, that famous Azizi. match against the uh, uh, Azizi's <laughs> done it. Oh no! I remember that commentary. It's a great piece of commentary. Yeah. yeah. But the remarkable thing about that game was was the pitch invader. No, yeah, I understand that he's very famous. This guy in Australia for for disrupting big occasions, and yeah, he he came on the pitch. I think when when Australia were two 0 up and. Uh, yeah, it ended up two two. Terry Venables, the Englishman, was in charge at that time, and um, yeah, but that disruption to the match just seemed to be the catalyst for that uh, Iran comeback. And and at that time, it did it did seem like there was a curse. You know, I know that in Australia they talk about this curse from Mo- Mozambique 
um, going back to the 70s. And I think before the 2005 qualifying, Australian comedian went over to Mozambique to, to pour chicken blood on himself or something to try and get rid of this curse that this Mozambique uh, witch doctor had put on them in the, in the 70s because an Australian delegation had left without paying him in the 70s or something. I can't, I can't quite remember the exact uh, details of that story, but... Yeah, there they just seemed to be this fear that Australia would never break this. Of course, you did in, in 2005 in the end. But I just want to speak a little bit about 2001, first of all, when you had won that first leg in, in Australia, 1-0, Kevin Muscat scoring a penalty to give you that advantage going into that second leg. But you've already kind of spoken about your your experience um, in Montevideo in 2001. Where, where you didn't receive the warmest of welcomes, I think it's fair to say. But from what I understand, that really, that that whole experience of experiencing that four years before 2005, that, that really helped you to get the mentality right the second time around. Well, it was not only the, not only the mentality, because I mean, there was quite a few of the guys that played in that 2001 game that were no longer involved four years later. It was more about... Um, understanding what what actually happened. I mean, we, we played the first game, like you said, we won 1-0, and then there's a week between games. But we, we went over there pretty pretty early, and we got there about five days before the game started. And that was that was mistake number one. You know, we went there way too early. What we should have done was we should have gone to a neighbouring, like probably Argentina, and spent, spent the three or four days, if not five days in Argentina, and arrive the night of the game, or the night, sorry, the night before the game, and, and and that was that was a very valuable lesson. Yeah, we arrived at the airport in 2001. We were spat at. We, we had punches thrown at us. Um, it was bedlam. We were waiting in the in the airport for for I think three or four hours before they'd even let our luggage off the plane, uh, and then even let alone getting through security. It was and there was no one at the airport. You can imagine it was just chaos. They were just doing anything and everything they possibly could just to to upset us. And, and, and I think a lot of ways it worked. You know, we had police escorts, sirens. The place came to life. People were running down the street. They were coming from out of their houses on rooftops from the beach. They were running up. You know, these, these old elderly men were walking with their, what I believe were their grandchildren, you know, in their hand, uh, like holding their hand. And all of a sudden they turn into this, like behaving like you, you just not believe it. You know, it's like it's a football match. And it was it's all to do with you know the culture. The, the it's like a religion. If not, it is their religion, and and that was I think the invaluable lesson that we all learnt. What sort of reception we would receive, um, what what it meant to to a country like Uruguay to qualify for a World Cup, that everyone would play their part into trying to put the the opposition off, and that very much worked in two thousand and one. So fast forwarding four years later uh, in two thousand and five. That you know, we went over there and we we actually we went to Argentina and we spent uh, I think about five days in Argentina and went there the day before. Um, now even then, our bus our bus was late picking us up by about two hours because uh, they 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 just couldn't find the bus apparently. But it was again, it was another tactic they played. Um, but the whole experience changed dramatically, and it was all about those experiences that we we encountered upon uh, four years earlier, and that made a lot, a lot of difference to us. And there was a core of the squad that had been there and had known what it was like, so we kind of were able to say to people, "Listen, this is what's going to happen. Just it's completely normal. Don't worry about it." Um, and it's all about us playing this game and winning this game and finally, or at least getting a good result that we can take something home and, and, and be able to either defend it or, 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 or actually 
give ourselves a chance in the second leg and and everything kind of fit into place you know we had a, we were a little bit lucky we were under under pressure a lot we we sustained the onslaught quite a bit we let it, we lost the game 1-0 but it was it was all about taking that that result back home and and knowing and having the belief that we could actually turn it around and it was the first time ever um ever ever I'd seen an Australian public react and behave towards an opposition you know they they were they found out which hotel they were staying at they were trying to keep them up all night blowing horns fireworks uh there was all sorts of things going on they were publicizing on the radio for people to go there and cause as much disruption as possible and it was a feeling that people wanted to give them back a little bit of a taste of their own medicine yeah having that second leg at home in in 2005 made a huge difference didn't it oh it was enormous it was enormous i mean even from you know i didn't even know this at the time but we were lining up in the tunnel to come out and Tony Popovich uh, was starting the match and he was at the back of the the line and obviously the tunnel as the tunnel goes back there's lots and lots of bodies in there and they actually targeted him and they there were two two uruguayans or two or three uruguayans who pinned him up against the wall this is before the game even kicked off and they were they were just trying to make him angry because they targeted him thought if we can get him angry he'll get sent off he'll make a rash challenge he will he'll get sent off and he was quite fortunate not to get sent off. Well, so well, in, in today's game, he, he would have been shown a red card straight away. Straight away I mean, yeah, uh, yeah there, there would have been no doubt whatsoever and there would have been no no argument. I don't think there was an argument. I don't really think there was an argument then. I, I think the referee bottled it and it, it, it did define the game, didn't it? Because off he goes, substituted, and hitting nose, you know. So he's just straight off. On comes, on comes Harry Kuehl. And yeah. within five minutes, Harry Kuehl has set up the equaliser. So uh, yeah. I, mean, I mean, it was very fortunate, the equaliser. I mean, Harry actually has a shot and he mishits and it falls straight to Bresh. But you know what? You earn your own luck. And, and sure, it, sure. It, it, it was the intention, you know, and Harry made a lot of difference when he came on. And, you know, Popo was very lucky not to be sent off, like I said. And it was only afterwards um, and actually quite some time afterwards that I found out that they were intimidating him in, in, in the tunnel and, and, and they, were, they were working on him to try and get him worked up. And it, and it almost paid off. And then we walk out to the national anthems and, and – you know, this is, like I said, again, I've never, ever seen this ever before in Australia, it's never happened since, is that when the Uruguay National Anthem was played and, and sung, the Australian public went crazy. They they booed and whistled the whole time. And and I would normally be, like, I'd be, I'd be appalled by it, right? But the way that Uruguay treated us, I mean, out there, I've actually forgot about this, out there, the first leg, they, during our National Anthem, they played it from halfway into the song. So they actually didn't even play it from the beginning that kind of that kind of thing's a common tactic here in south america absolutely, absolutely. so the australian public knew about it and reported it was you know disrespectful and we just thought you know the public just went you know what enough's enough and we're going to give them something back of the taste of their own medicine and i remember looking at the uruguayan players as it was happening and and, and some of them were, were a little bit rattled because i don't think they thought the australian public had it in them yeah i, th- I think you were fortunate to even get the right national anthem played <laughs> I've, I've seen i've seen cases i've seen cases where they will play the wrong national anthem to get you really riled up yeah well i can imagine <laughs> tim do you have uh, any questions for mark well one of the things I think it's easy to forget here is just how thin the margins were both times. Uh, I mean, the, if you look at the scores of the first of 2001, you know, 1-0 Australia, 3-0 Uruguay, it looks cut and dried. It was not cut and dried until the final kick of the game because uh, I felt uh, one big contrast you can, you can make in terms of preparation is the first half that Australia played in Montevideo in 2001 and the first half that they played in 2005. 
Um, it seemed to, obviously, and Mark has explained why they weren't mentally prepared in 2001 and the first half passed them by, you know, because you get an away goal and you're halfway there. And, and, and Australia did very, very little first half. Uh, second half, exactly at the moment that they're looking most dangerous, Uruguay scored a second goal. Um, I remember Viduka, I was sitting amongst the Australian press and it all went very, very quiet in the second half. But Viduka missed a really good chance with a header. And even when it's 2-0, Agostino forces a, forces a save from, from Carini. So it's only right at the end, right in the last minute when, when uh, Morales scores, scores his second and makes it 3-0, that the thing is, is, uh, is, is decided. So it really was very, very close indeed. It could have gone the other way. Had Viduka had a, had a better day, uh, you know, it could, it could have gone the other way. But the vital moment, perhaps, is that second goal. The Morales, Morales first. He's just come on. Uh, and uh, Uruguay, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not a great side, but Ricoba has magic in that left foot. And he puts in the he puts in the, the the free kick, and what on earth was happening, Mark, with the near post? Because you hadn't had any, you didn't have anyone on the near post um, protecting that that strategic space. And big Morales had only just come on. He's, he's he gets a free run, and he gets he, he gets uh, he, he gets the header in. What went wrong with the marking there? Well, when, I think a lot of it was just down to the occasion. I think we got caught up in the occasion in the end. I think, you know, like you said, the first half, we won in the game. We did ourselves absolutely no favours whatsoever. We gave ourselves no real um, honest chance to, to, you know, to, 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 to really push Uruguay. Um, and I think that there was that self-belief. It sort of faded away a little bit. I think we were a little bit rabbits in headlights on that day, um, even though, you know, we, we had a... a an incredibly experienced side in, in so many ways. Um, we just we just really struggled to deal with. I think the overall atmosphere that the the Uruguayans had created that day. And I think once once the game kind of like you know once you find yourself you're one you're one one on aggregate, then you're two one down. You chase the game a little bit, obviously. And as the longer the game goes on, you start to you know if you're not you still have to be really controlled and calm. But we weren't. We lost our calmness. We lost our control. And and then you make silly mistakes. You know, you 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 get caught out of position. Players lose their head. They you start to push players forward, trying to attack the, uh, Uruguay, or, or at least on a counter get the ball and play really quickly and try and catch them out. And it, and it didn't. It just backfired on us completely. And you're right. You know, Dukes's big chance with a header. Has he had he scored that? That makes all the difference. You know, it, the game, the complexity of the game changes. Um, and I think our confidence would have, would have gone through the roof as well, and, and it's unfortunate. You know, it, it's all those those sort of those campaigns that you look back at. You know, that one in two thousand and one, the ninety seven. I wasn't involved in the game against, in ninety seven. Um, I wasn't I wasn't selected for those group of games, and I remember watching uh, watching particularly the second game live on TV, and it was the same sort of thing. You know, I mean, if you watch that highlights of that game, I mean, that is quite remarkable. I mean, how how Australia were not winning six nil. Um, is beyond me. You know the chance. Even even the Iran head coach after the game said that Australia deserved to qualify, didn't they? Well, it was madness. It was absolute madness. And and then that was, I think, the cutting edge. That was that that I think that little bit of uh, that nervousness, um, probably that inexperience. Even though we had players that were playing at the highest level around different clubs around Europe, I think the fact that for Australia. Um, the longer it went on, 1974 was the first time we qualified for the World Cup. And then until 2005 to the 2006 World Cup, we, we hadn't qualified for another one. 
you know, and it, so it was 32 years later. It, it took us 32 years to, to qualify for our second ever World Cup. And I think that just was taking its toll. And what we needed was we needed someone to come in like a Gus Hedink who had, you know, an incredible amount of experience. Obviously, you've got to have the right type of player and the right type of mentality with you. And, and he was able to get the best out of, out, of, out of the vast majority of the squad. And, and his experience combined with, with the, obviously, the talent we had on the pitch was, 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 uh, was what we needed for us to get over that line. I love the way. It's one of my favourite things about football, the way that the, the star on Sunday can be the mug on Monday and vice versa. And, uh, and big Chengi Morales, who was the absolute hero of that game where Uruguay qualified for 2002, come the World Cup, he becomes the villain because the last moment of the last group game, they fought back for a, to a, with a 3-3 draw with Senegal. All they need to do, if they win, they go through to the next round. And he has a head. It looks easy. In fact, there's not quite enough pace on the ball for him, uh, and you know he's, he's almost staying on the goal line. But the ball comes off his head like a lump of like a lump of cheese, and the opportunity is missed. So the hero of the qualification then became the villain of of, of the elimination. But going forward then to 2005, um, the, the game in Montevideo, I love the first half that Australia produced. Um, and Hidden had it. He, he packed the midfield, didn't he? He played three at the back and and, and packed midfield, and. Australia was so compact. Uh, Uruguay were, were very, very direct from the start, l- launching it long. Um, and all really, the f- they didn't have a lot of threat in the first half apart from set pieces. And an- another set piece did you on the goal, the goal for, for Daddy Rodriguez. But second half, once Uruguay found their range a little bit, the second half really was one-way traffic and you were, you were lucky to come away only losing 1-0. And I have... Two questions. The answers. The answer may not be the same, but it's a moment where Ricoba is through one on one with you. First <laughs> yeah, question. First question is: Was it a penalty? And second question: Were you surprised it wasn't given? Was it a penalty? You know, I have to remember back to it now. Um, I, I, I think. I think it was one of those ones. If I can remember correctly, it was one of those ones where I felt that I probably was a little bit lucky. Um, because more often than not, in those sort of circumstances, the referee will give it. Yeah. Because it's it's in South America, the pressure, the the home team advantage, you know, all those sort of things play their part. Um, but you know, I think the fact is that you know we know that Rakoba was one of those players that did exaggerate things, and I think the referee probably thought that as well, and 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 gave me on that on that particular. Uh, moment, he gave me the benefit of the doubt, which, which I'm, I'm grateful for, of course. Um, but yeah, it was it was one of those ones where um, it was a difficult a difficult game, you know, and, and we had to ride our luck at times. And the second half, particularly, once they found some momentum, I remember being, you know, in the thick of things for for the remainder of the of, of that half. And and all I was thinking was, you know, one nil, we'll, we'll live with that. You know, to to have lost the game one nil, it was an, it, it was acceptable. Having lost, the, if you'd lose the game 2 0, 3 0, you know, that is obviously a, a, a huge mountain then to try and climb. Um, so, so how, for us, how slim the lines are, aren't they, yeah, between, between success and failure? In 2000, you could have qualified for 2002, that Viduka header, and you, you qualify for 2002. 2005, that penalty, and I agree with you. I thought it wasn't a penalty, but I was surprised it wasn't given. Um, yeah. You know, that, that goes the other way, and uh, it's, it's very, very difficult for Australia to come back. When Uruguay, in the end, they had to take the 1-0 lead. They took the 1-0 lead. They went, they flew to Australia 
um, having rallied really well in the second half of the qualification in, in, in South America. They were then going, going over to Australia. They were unbeaten in 10 qualifiers. So they, they, they thought they, they had a pretty good chance. Now, their travel was very difficult, wasn't it? Australia won the battle there with how you travelled over because the, the game, the, the, the kickoff time kept on being changed. There was some gamesmanship going on and, and Uruguay ended up not being able to get even uh, all of their players in first class. They had some in cattle class and some in first class and they tried to swap it over during the, during the long flight in order to try and even it up so their key players would, would, would arrive fresh. And then come the game, and Uruguay went out early to try and get an away goal, and it didn't quite happen. And Ricorba, the, the view I always had of Ricorba was a little bit of an adolescent. He's one of those people you can't believe he was, he's, he's, he's like an experienced player, an adult. He's, he's, you don't really, I, I never really relied on him in the big moments. You know he's, he's capable of genius, but do you, do you really back him to, 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 to come up with it when, when the stakes are really high? And he faded. And uh, he he gets uh, he gets substituted in the second half, and during the second half, and I thought Uruguay were absolutely out on their feet. I, I thought, well, you know, Uruguay they can hang on and hang on and hang on, but I can't see this in extra time. But give them credit, in extra time they were the better side. They were the more dangerous side than Australia were. How do you explain that, Mark? I think, again, I think it was a little bit of nerves coming in again. I mean, even though we had that experience, we had that, uh, uh, you know, the, the even more experience, I think, individually, better better players, you know, in, in, in man for man. But I think overall it was just that little bit of nerves creeping in for us. You know, you know it's on a knife edge. You know that, you know, one slip up and you find yourself, uh, again, in, in, in such a difficult position. And you're right, you know, there were gamesmanship. I think Australia learned their lesson very quickly uh, from four years previously, how we were treated um, and I think, uh, in a large way, they wanted to to give uh, the Uruguayans uh, no no easy ride. I mean, you know, Uruguay also talked it up brilliantly. I mean, they, I mean, they they gave us every ammunition they could possibly give, and I mean, they said they had the divine right to qualify. Um, they were going to qualify because it was their divine right, um, and uh, and that it didn't matter, you know, what we did, how we played. They were they were going to beat us, and they they do have that doggedness, you know. They have that that side of them that they they know how to win games, they know how to fight, and I think that that came very much through in in, in extra time, you know. Even though they, you know, should have been should have been you know falling away, they should have been almost falling over. They didn't. They found extra legs, and they were unfortunate. Um, you know, from from their perspective, not from ours. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have any sympathy for them whatsoever. No, why, um, why? A, you know, absolutely. You know, it was a, it was a an incredible rivalry. You know, and, and it was, I think, it was a very special moment. Um, you know, for so many reasons for for Australian football, but I think the rivalry made it also so special. Not only you know you're talking about qualifying for a World Cup first time in 32 years, but you're talking about they became our enemy number one. They became public enemy number one in terms of our national team playing football against one country. Who do you want them to win? You put a survey out there, I think you'd probably come back 100%. Everyone wanted to to beat Uruguay and rub their faces in it. And I think, you know, the scene was set. And I think... um, you know, when when you got to extra time, we we probably got that little bit of nervousness involved. 
I well remember that that climate of nationalism because you know I'm doing it for for SBS and I'm supposed to be there giving a kind of South American perspective. And I tell you, the hate mail I got from Australians, uh, a lot of it was you know I'd write an article or SBS and, and the BBC and uh, all this abuse from Australians. A lot of it was based on the fact that uh, I was being neutral. That 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 seemed to, to be a to be to be a sin, you know. The fact yeah. I was working for SBS meant that I, I should have been watch, w- w- watching it through through Australian spectacles. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, listen. I, I think that's pretty much how they would have they would have seen it. You know, being SBS is is seen as uh, at the time particularly it was the, the go to place for Australian football and had been for a long long time, and it was very much in support of Australia, particularly when it came down to 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 the World Cup and qualifiers, and you know they. The Australian public, as as us players, we were all desperate. You know, the the thing about it is, you know, it's like anything. You you, you have years and years of of pain. You have failed campaigns, falling over the final hurdle in dramatic circumstances. The game against you know Iran, um, you know, beating Uruguay, you know, four years earlier, and then get beaten three 0 away. Uh, you know, but people still come out. People still come out and support the team and want to go through the emotional roller coaster as, as football is. Um, and, and it was again another reason why the scene was set back in 2005. We 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 had a really tough year in 2005 in Australia. There was some there was some racial tension amongst amongst Australians from different uh, ethnic backgrounds. From uh, I think it was the Lebanese community with with uh, certain aspects of the Australian you know the, the Anglo-Saxon Australian community, and there was some real divide amongst Australian people, and and, and um, it was escalating at times and. This game came along at the perfect time because football, like no other sport, unites everyone. And particularly like a country like Australia, it's so multicultural, people from all over the world. Um, but what actually happened was all the, 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 the heritage, the family heritage were all put to one side. And on that particular evening, every single person was Australian. And, and there were people of all different ethnicities in that stadium, you know, uh, side, you know side by side, supporting each other you know going through the emotions um crying at the end of it of tears of joy and and uh i I think i'd feel very proud of being part of that 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 night for that reason as well and it all comes down to you and going into that penalty shootout are you more scared of letting anyone down or proud of the chance of being the hero i was still angry because you probably don't know uh, yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to ask you this, Mark. I know what you're going to say here because yeah. yeah. for the last ten minutes of extra time, you've had on your mind that you might get taken off. Right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so Zelko Kalex warming up, and I, 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 I sort of clock it in the corner of my eye, and I look over and I go, "That's really unusual." Like, is he just? I don't get it. And I, and it took me a couple of like maybe I don't know maybe ten fifteen seconds to work it out and go, "Oh, he's not going to do what I'm thinking he's going to do, is it?" And I started quickly in my head go, okay, how many subs have we made? Obviously, we've still got another sub because otherwise you wouldn't be warming up. And then I, I started to get angry. And it, then it's still trying to stay focused because obviously the game's playing and you've got to make sure that you, know, you, you do what you do and keep, you know, keep your head. But there was that slight distraction on the side of, you know, the, the, in, in my mind of thinking, I could be just walking off this pitch any minute now. And I, I still, I'm still very thankful to Brett Emerson for getting cramps, <laughs> and he got cramps and had to be replaced. And, and there goes the most the, unlikely player to get cramp, I understand as well. No? Absolutely. So it, it, it did me a huge, huge favour. 
So, so once that happened, actually, it was like a weight off my shoulders had been lifted. Mark, just, just one more quick question, because I noticed watching this footage back the other day that you were, had a conversation with Gus just before the, the penalty shootout, and you seem like you're laughing and joking about it, but do you remember any of the words said in that conversation between you I and Gus? I, I don't remember the exact words that were spoken, but it, there was, it was more about... It was more about um, you know you, you you know you're in goal now you, you know this is now where we need you to to help us out and uh, you know you just got to go out there and, and do what you can to do to to hopefully you know make some saves and 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 help us get to the World Cup and I think that was it was more probably a laughter out of a bit of a bit of breaking the ice and a bit of like the seriousness of of the situation um, but. I, I, you know, it wasn't. I, I felt. I think I probably was laughing because I feel like saying to him, you know, you, and you were going to replace me, you know, you so and so, but I didn't, obviously. Um, but <laughs> that's what you kind of feel at the time because, you know, it, it, it's it's as a goalkeeper, I think it's one of the hardest things that could happen to you. That you know, you not only do you get substituted and taken off because you have a bad performance, that's pretty di- that'd be pretty bad, bad as well. But I think to be taken off for a penalty shootout, and, and, and let's be let's be honest, you know, fast forward, and I think it was two thousand and fourteen. Uh, Gus did it, you know, with Holland. It was Louis, uh, Louis van Gaal who did it, but it's a Dutch school. Oh, sorry, sorry, Louis van Gaal did it. Yeah, you're right. So, and 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 that is the thing that they, they would do. And I, I I remember watching it, just going, I know how he's feeling. I, I can I can only imagine how he's yeah. feeling. Like obviously, it didn't go that far for me, but I I, I could only imagine how it would have felt. So yeah, it, it was it was a case of right. I'm gonna. Try. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do my. Of course, you want to do your best. You want to do everything, but I also want to prove prove him wrong, prove that he was going to make one of the biggest mistakes ever. Uh, in my head. Well, it, it it could have been an immense mistake because, as you said, that's obviously going to affect your concentration, and you can see the goal in extra time, and it doesn't even go to penalties. So you know, again, we're back to that theme, which I think is one of the big themes of of this. You know, how thin the line can be between between being a genius and being an idiot. Because imagine that you've lost a little bit of focus and you make a mistake because you're seeing this out of the corner of your eye. We would we would be putting that down to inept man management. Yeah, it's funny because I saw I saw Gus. Um... I think it was about seven or eight months ago I saw him for the first time in a long, long time, caught up with him, and we had a bit of a chat. And, and it was funny because out of the blue, he just he was there with his wife, and he turned to his wife and said, you know what, I've only made a couple of mistakes in my – I made about two or three mistakes in my whole career. And one of them was, was uh, when, he, when he replaced me for, for the game in, in, in at, actually at the World Cup in, uh, against Croatia. And I felt like saying to him, "You almost made another one," <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was interesting, you know, that, that that he was able to look back at certain things that he, he made mistakes where he actually pinpointed certain instances in his entire career and gone, "Right, I made a mistake there." Um, but yeah, listen. In the end, it didn't happen. In the end, I was able to play my part, and you get enormous amount of satisfaction from it. Um, you know, in, in 1993, I was involved in my first ever penalty shootout for Australia. And it was actually my second only uh, international. It was my first international. I started from from the beginning of the match, and that was the game. Obviously, the qualifier leading up, and it was against Canada. So, and I saved two penalties on that night. So it was nice to to be part of a of a um, you know another another World Cup campaign and, and and have success at the penalty shootout stage. I think uh, I think your two penalties in the in the penalty shootout, yeah, a lot of Australians would say. 
are two of the greatest saves in in Australian football history. Not not just for what they meant, but also, you know, your your ability to actually save those. Certainly, the second one, which was really key after Vaduka had put his penalty wide. Um, yeah, that was a magnificent save. You know, where do these saves stand in in kind of your Hall of Fame of of saves in your career? I mean, when when people people often ask me, you know, what's what's your best ever save that you've made and all sorts of stuff, and I I I never like to really categorize it that way. I just leave it up to other people, you know, the so called experts, fans, whoever want to, you know, comment on on what they. I mean, I have I have I suppose moments in my career that stand out the most and of course I, I i then categorize it and say the most significant saves that i've made in my career and and those two clearly are part of that whole that they're right up there as probably you know being number one and number two of the most significant saves i've made in my whole career um because of the magnitude world cup qualifier scene set you're at home Eighty-three thousand people. You know, it's against the arch nemesis, your enemies of four years before, and everything that's happened. Um, and it comes down to this moment. So, and the pressure that's on that, the 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 expectation, the the hopes and dreams. And you you we knew if we'd qualify for the World Cup, we could help change the game in Australia. We just didn't realise how much we could do it, how much it would have an effect. Um, but every one of us, you know, are just unbelievably privileged to have been part of it, to say that we were there, we were part of it, and we played that our part in changing the game and how the game was, how the game, even more importantly, how the game is respected in Australia by, by the greater public. Now we've got a team, that an Australian football team, that's playing at World Cups, whereas, you know, you, you've got to put it in perspective. You've got to, you've got to understand the, the landscape in Australia. AFL, no one else plays it. It's the one game that is only played in Australia. So we are the best in the world at it, right? There's no other league. There's no national team. But we're the best at it because no one else plays it. Rugby league, we are time and time again the best, one of the best, if not the best team. Rugby, we're up there, the four, four five, six teams in the world have been world champions and so on. Um, cricket, again. So we're used to being the best at these sports. We're used to being... On the world stage, winning these major major tournaments, major trophies, albeit against only a handful of nations by comparison to football. So I think it was the it was the moment where football actually gained an enormous amount of respect by the rest of the sporting world in Australia. Germany, it was 32 years ago, and Germany it is now in 2006 for the Australians. Which is the way to Germany? Is it north, south, east, west? We don't care. We're going. At last, the dream has been fulfilled for the Australians. An epic struggle. One of the most epic games that I have had the opportunity to witness, and I've seen a few, as you may be able to guess. And, of course, one in which we were all emotionally involved. And Johnny Warren told us so. I told you so. I told you so. And there it is. He's been proven to be right again. Johnny... We're here. Well, just 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 one final question, really. Uh, um, it's actually the first game when it all went very very quiet amongst the Australian press. It's when I where I learnt uh, the the expression "spit the dummy," which I'd never yep. heard before. Um, <laughs> but I, the question really is, you know, someone who was uh, an Australian kid who was ten years old watching you save those penalties will be twenty five now. 
are you disappointed that that generation that you helped to inspire haven't made more progress? And we're not we're not talking about Australia as, as potential World Cup semi finalists. You know what? Um, am I disappointed? Um, there's an element of you know disappointment to a degree, I suppose. I mean, I think I'm more disappointed that we've been at the last two World Cups and and not won a game. That's probably my biggest disappointment is that you know we've been knocked out of the group stages in the last two World Cups without winning a single game. In 2014, we lost all three games. Incredibly um, tough group in 2014. No, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. There's no doubt whatsoever about it. But I mean, 2014, again, you, you've got to know the context of the situation. You know, we we lost, uh, you know, Holger Osiak, who was involved, was the manager when we, we qualified, lost his job after two two bad defeats. And But, you know, let, let's put that in perspective. Uh, and, and I'm... And I'm sure, Tim, you'll, you'll know the game and, and or both of you will know the, the game against Brazil in Brasilia, you know, against a side that, that uh, I mean, I think they'd won, they'd, sorry, they'd lost maybe one or two games in four years, you know, an incredible side. We weren't great on the day and we deserved to lose 6-0. And it's not nice to lose those sort of games. And then, and then, a, and then a month later, we lose away in Paris against, against France. Again, another incredible side. Um, and then the, the mandate... Um, and and the mandate for Ange Postacoglu, uh, the new manager, and also the and the person, part of it was his own, and, and part of it was the federation was to win the the two, 2015 Asian Cup, which was in Australia. So they went to the 2014 World Cup purely as a, uh, as an exercise to breed the next the next generation of players or the next the next group of players to peak six months later at the 2015 Asian Cup. That was the sole sole purpose, and that's where I, I was disappointed the most in in terms of anything else. Really, is that we 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 kind of already at 2014, so we're talking, you know, three World Cups later, we're almost already kind of taking it for granted a little bit, and we're almost kind of going, well, we've actually qualified, great job done. Now we're going to use it as a platform to get our team ready for the 2015 Asian Cup that we're hosting, and that's our our number one goal to win that. And and since then we we again we, we we haven't delivered we have struggled um, to deliver on on that world stage, um, and and that and that's that's disappointing. You know I was involved in the last the last win Australia had at a World Cup and that was against Serbia in two thousand and ten. You know and that's perceived by the Australian public as a disastrous World Cup. Bearing in mind we finished on four points, the same amount of points we did in two thousand and six where we qualified for the round of sixteen. But in 2010, we missed out on goal difference because we got beaten 4-0 by Germany rather than 2-0 like we did by, uh, by Brazil in 2006. That was our one bad game. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm disappointed that we haven't developed further. I'm disappointed that the league in Australia hasn't been able to, to, to capitalise even more so than, than what it did initially. It's faded away now. I'm disappointed that the, the, the direction of, of the, the federation has, has kind of waned a little bit and gone off track a little bit. But I'm confident now with particularly the new CEO that's involved with the Federation, James Johnson, that he's a, it's the first time that we have a CEO in, I, I think, the, I can't even remember the last time we had a CEO that was from a football background, that first and foremost has football in his heart, in his blood, and in, at the fore, uh, but also has a lot of experience at running, running organizations and being involved at the highest level. So I'm I'm quietly confident things can change. Also, when you look at the twenty uh, the two thousand um, last year's World Cup, the Under Seventeen's World Cup, Australia did pretty well at it. 
we lost. We end up losing to um, I think it was uh, France four nil in the in the round of sixteen. But out of that group, those group of players, we've had about six or seven players that have signed for clubs over in Europe, but big clubs in Europe. Rather than going to Asia, we've got them going back to Europe. And for me, that's absolutely key for the success of the game in Australia. That our next generation of players firstly have the right the right um, setup in Australia the the right grounding but secondly their destination is Europe and not Asia because I think Europe for me is the way that they progress and we become a better side man for man and I think this next group of generation of players coming through the the 17 year olds the 2002 2003 years 2004 year uh, are the ones that I think could could potentially bring Australia back to similar levels of the 2006 side when I th- when I think of Australia, I've never been there. Um, it would, much to my own regret, I am distantly related to the the former fast medium bowler Terry Alderman. It was a one one oh, day I'm going to have to have to go over and and uh, and and feel the Fremantle doctor. Um, but Absolutely. you know, what, what, when 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 you think of Australia, you think of aggressive, in your face. You know. And uh, I'm I'm a bit shocked <laughs> that that the mentality of going to a World Cup, you know, just to just to give experience and 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 prepare for the future, it doesn't seem very Australian to me. Have is there a consolidated or is is Australian football in the process of consolidating a style which is in harmony with with the that Australian aggressive nature? That's been one of, I suppose, one of our problems in the past is that, you know, we've had a lot, a lot of outside influence on, on, on our, the direction of um, development of, of football talent in Australia. And, I mean, you know, I think it's key to get some of the best minds that you possibly can, you know, bearing in mind potential constraints that you may have, whether it's financial or, or, or even the fact that it's Australia and, and how many people are really that interested in, in, in being involved in, in possibly setting up um, a program, whether it's to do with uh, development of the game uh, or national team. But, you know, there's, there's been enough interest in the past. And I think we've had a huge Dutch influence. We've had a, a curriculum that was put into place um, in, uh, I think it was 2009. And since then, like I said, this, this under-17s, last year's two, uh, group, um, are the are the, the the first group that have come through this this national curriculum that was put into place? Um, they were like seven years old, six seven years old when it was implemented. So they're the, they're the ones that have actually had the most experience throughout that whole curriculum. And the the, the question is whether or not that is um, that is coincidental or whether that has actually direct impact from the curriculum. So to add on to it is that we needed outside influence to help with the development with the technical aspect. But we also need that homegrown expertise, whether it's to do with ex-national team players, coaches in Australia, that understand the culture through and through. And I think that balance hasn't been been found as yet. We're, we're still trying to find a balance of the technical aspect, but also maintaining the physicality, the, the, the mentality that Australians have always been associated with. And I think that's something that we've, we've, we've waned on a little bit. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm pretty confident that we'll kind of go come back a little bit more um i'm i'm, I'm pretty confident that, that that people have identified that and realized that yes we need the technical aspect but if we can enhance if we could actually harness both of them i think it it, it actually is a, is potentially a good for a very very good formula that could you know have some success and just a final word on the the other side of the equation not making it to the 2006 world cup didn't do uruguay any harm did it 
And what a fantastic story that is! You know, they, you think their history is all is all behind them, and then in two of the last three World Cups, they've statistically at least they've been the best South American side, uh, and uh, with a with a project based on youth development, which is uh, the, the the envy of the world. So uh, losing to you, the the the, the heroics of Mark Schwarzer. Um, in uh, in those two games in 2005, they ended up uh, doing Uruguay uh, a bit of a, a bit of good as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes you've got to go through that that uh, that bit of hurt to, to to rejig things. And I think Uruguay, you know, Uruguay, you got to take your hat off to. You know, first ever World Cup winners uh, to have been involved in every World Cup uh, for up to that sort of period of time to have been so successful. The amount of players they produce for a very very small nation um, is incredible. There's a lot to be learnt from them. Um, and uh, I think that uh, having Uruguay at a World Cup is always very, very exciting. And I, I look forward to one day, hopefully soon, that uh, we have Australia and Uruguay pipped against each other again on the world stage. That would be that would be truly remarkable again to see. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of fondness for them. I, there's obviously that rivalry, but I, I bumped into Diego Forland uh, last year, and we we had a bit of a chuckle about it. Um, he was un, he was injured for the for that second lot of. Uh, qualifies in 2005 um, but you know he I, I gave him a little bit of stick about it but then he came back to me very very quickly and said that uh, that uh, he he scored the winner in the Europa League final against Fulham back in 2010 <laughs> so I went pretty quiet pretty quickly yeah uh, just just from everything I've sort of read and read and heard from the Uruguayan camp since since those cl- yeah, epic encounters. You know, they have nothing but respect for that Australian side, which is something they perhaps didn't have going going into those games. But certainly coming out the other side, they did. So yeah, that just shows you the the credit um, that this Australian this Australia side has now. It's what football's all about: making friends all over the world, even if uh, even if you have to have to take the scenic route in order to arrive at the friendship. Absolutely, no doubt about it at all. It's, it's remarkable, you know, to say that I, I'm, I'm so I feel very fortunate to have played a, a World, well played World Cup qualifiers in South America. It is like no other place. Um, you know, I was like I said, I was involved in the in the the squad for 1993. We played against Argentina. Um, in you know, in uh, playing in that stadium was insane. Like the, the atmosphere that you just could not hear each other within a meter of each other. You just couldn't hear each other talk. Um, Montevideo was intimidating. It was they were ruthless. Uh, it was in. It was just amazing, amazing to be part of it, you know. And, and uh, I look back at it with huge amount of respect and fond memories of it. And, and it's actually a place I'd like to go back and revisit. I, I really would. But at the time, obviously, there's a lot of hostility. It's not something you really want to do any sightseeing when you're there uh, during that period of time. But it's certainly a place I'd love to go and revisit. Mark, you'd be you'd be amazed outside of football. They're the most civilized people in South America. They re- they really are. I mean, I can't believe Les Murray managed to get mugged there. And how on earth, of yeah. all capitals in South America, to get mugged, and he gets mugged in the safest one. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I don't know how he did it you, unless he was wandering around with a with a with a kangaroo on his back or something. Um, but so I'm sure if, if you go again, you, you'll you'll love it. The no one will kick you. You get him on no, the fo- you nice. get him on the football field, <laughs> and, and it, it just unleashes the the the, the warrior madman in them at times. Although these days, under Tabardas, they're winning fair play awards from time to time as well. So, but I'm, I'm sure if you go again, you'll love it. Yeah, you cool. might have a ch- you might have that chance next year. No, Mark, if you come over for Copa America, be based yeah, in Buenos Aires. Be- it's only a short short uh, jaunt across. 
Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going to happen. We, I was, I was down to actually be in the studio back in Sydney for for the uh, the Euros plus obviously the Copas once because uh, Optus Sport obtained the rights for the Copa America as well. So the plan was to be based in Sydney in a studio. That may change uh, next year. Who knows? Uh, but that would be something special. Trailhead full of zombies. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? This podcast was produced and edited by Adam Ramsey. With special thanks to Daniel Hemingway and Daniel Campos for production assistance guests were Mark Schwarzer and Tim Vickery. Thank you for listening. This has been a World Football Index production.